So I'd like to welcome everyone today to FAFSA. Our discussion is on the Cancun Climate Change Conference Scale. What does it mean? My name is Jen Costa and I'll be your moderator tonight. And we'd like to start uh, by thanking SACPA, which is a volunteer nonprofit organization. It relies on the contributions of members and session attendees to continue its work. And um, just in case you're interested, volunteers will be accepting donations as you leave the room tonight. Uh, we'd also like to thank the University of Rutgers for their support and the Galt Museum for providing this beautiful venue for our talk tonight. And um, so just let you know how the format's going to go. It's 15 minutes, 15 minutes for each, presenta each uh, presentation, 15, and then we'll have a break for refreshments, and then we'll follow up again with another 45 to 15 minute question and answer period. So a little bit longer than a regular noon hour of the presentation, if that's what you're used to. So I'd like to really quickly welcome Anina uh, from the Gulf, so she can say a few words about our wonderful venue tonight. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Gulf Museum and Archives. We're very pleased to be able to host a SACPA lecture here. And um, we got in touch with uh, Lisa Lambert and um, asked her if we could host something, a speaker here to talk about Earth Hour, uh, because we are participating in Earth Hour, and we were hoping to make it a little bit of a larger event. And it has become larger, because now we have this great presentation with three wonderful speakers. Um, the Gulf is also presenting the Earth's Climate in the Balance exhibit starting in January next year, and it will uh, run through Earth Day next year. And so uh, we're hoping to um, have more discussions like these at the Gulf uh, between now and, and then and afterwards, of course, as well. So um, during tonight, we have our exhibit hall open and our museum store open. If you haven't been here before, please feel free to have a look and enjoy the evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. So tonight, as we, as I already mentioned, we're here for the Cancun Climate Change Conference Deal. What does it mean? Delegates from all 194 countries, except one, agreed to cut carbon emissions and assist developing countries tackle climate change as part of a historic deal in Cancun to stop global warming. The deal falls short of what many scientists, environmentalists, and the country of Bolivia claim is needed to stop catastrophic global warming. But it represents a step towards the eventual goal of many, uh, a legally binding treaty aimed at preventing temperatures rising more than two degrees this century. So we have three speakers tonight. We have Dr. Richard Mrazek, uh, George Gallant, and Stephen McGlenn, and I do believe all three were at the Cancun conference. And they're going to be speaking about their experiences, and I think that they have some really fantastic uh, slides as well to show. Dr. Mrazek is a professor of science education in the Faculty of Education and the Associate Dean. He earned his Bachelor's of Science and his Bachelor's of Education from the University of Lethbridge, and then went on to obtain his Master's and PhD in Science Education at the University of Alberta. George Glenn is an independent producer for the past 13 years, working on various projects, including broadcasting daily live videos back to Canada from Nepal for CBC News World during the successful Everest 2000 expedition. And Stephen McGlenn is a recent graduate of the University of Lethbridge, completing his BA with Honours and Distinction in Native American Studies. Stephen recently attended the, the Climate Change Conference in Cancun as part of the Canadian Youth Delegation, which is a non-governmental organization of youth leaders from across the country that have been sending delegates to the UNFCCC meetings for several years. 
So please join me in welcoming our first speaker, Steve, and I believe he's just over here. Um, thanks for having me. Um, thanks for SACPA and the GALT for, for hosting this event tonight. Um, before I start, I want, to, uh, I want to extend a really, really big thanks to our local heavy metal musicians and fans here. Um, what actually got me to Cancun, I had to fundraise in order to go, what got me there was, uh, was the fundraising efforts that uh, my friends and I put together. And the biggest one was a tribute to Iron Maiden concert we did at the university. And uh, I haven't been able to properly thank the, uh, the heavy metal fans here in Lethbridge for, for their support. Um, so I really want to extend a big thanks to them. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, I just want to talk a little bit about um, sort of what the youth delegation was. Um, so I, I believe uh, it was COP14 in Poznan was the first Canadian youth delegation. Um, so it's essentially a non-governmental organization, non-partisan, and they just select youth leaders from across the country to go um, to go to this UN conference to sort of bring a youth perspective to the leaders and to politicians at the negotiations and just try and, you know, lobby um, for effective climate change legislation and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I got selected um, about in July to go, and that's, you know, kind of when the process started. Um, and our kind of our objective is to, you know, look at climate change and, you know, take the science of climate policy or the science of climate change and bring that to the policymakers. And we're saying, look, this is the role that science plays, or that sh science should play rather in our in our policymaking. Um, is that, you know, we need to take what the experts are telling us and put that into policy, right? Um, so that's kind of the the basics. Um, and so what we actually do, I'll kind of take you on a day-by-day like a, a -day, um, sort of tour of what we did as a delegation. We get, to, we get into the conference. Um, we meet with uh, uh, Saint-Jacques, who is the Canadian chief negotiator. We meet with him, and uh, he would kind of give us a breakdown of what was happening in the negotiations. Um, and then it was kind of up to us somewhere we wanted to go. There was a lot of stuff happening in, in, the, in Cancun, not only at the conference itself, but around, around the city of Cancun as well. Um, so we would meet with Saint-Jacques, he would give us kind of a breakdown, we would ask him questions, he wouldn't really give us a straight answer because as, as the chief negotiator, he's kind of taking his orders from, straight from Harper, um, and uh, you know, he doesn't really have a lot of ability to, uh, you know, to, he doesn't have a lot of direction or a lot of power in his role, he's kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, he's a little bit of a puppet. Um, and so. I mean, our first impression in our meeting with him was that, you know, he really, you know, he wasn't answering our questions. He wasn't giving us any straight answers. He was just kind of dodging around. And that really, our first impression of the conference was, you know, we felt really disjointed and, you know, kind of a little bit angry, right? Because <clears throat> for me personally, I spent a lot of time um, fundraising to go um, to represent, you know, youth of my country at this conference. And, you know, it was, it meant a big deal to me and, and to all the youth in the, in the delegation, right? And so to go there and to get that immediate sort of, you know, slamming the door, I mean, in one aspect, in one, one sense, we kind of expected it because, you know, that's kind of how things go sometimes. But on the other side of it, we were really, yeah, it was very frustrating. You know, so that's kind of, that's how the tone was set right at the very beginning was this kind of frustration, right? And, um, and I should say that that frustration is kind of the whole bent of why the youth delegation was formed in the first place as these negotiations have been happening since, let's say, 1992-ish, since the Rio summit, 
Um, and they've been negotiating for almost 20 years now, and they still haven't produced anything, right? So civil society in general is like, okay, we need to be involved here, and we need to kind of give these guys a kick in the pants to, you know, get the negotiations going and try and arrive at some sort of treaty, right? Or some, some kind of deal. So that's really, that's kind of where the Canadian youth delegation stood at the very beginning of its formation. It was, okay, we need, we need to do something about it, right? Um, so, um, yeah, what... What I want to sort of start with, though, is you know some of the good news. There was there was actually some good news in in Cancun, which was like very rare. We all kind of grabbed onto it and held onto it for our dear lives because there's so much negativity around this issue, um, and that is uh, this this issue called Article Six. Uh, so the the UNFCCC, I believe I believe Article Six is part of the UNF UNFCCC, which is the uh, framework um, convention on climate change. So Article Six is actually um, it's this part of the, of the document that describes the role of youth, specifically youth, and uh, kind of civil society in general, and um, what, um, what role they play in the negotiations, um, and uh, what countries should be doing to support youth um, back in, 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 their, you know, in their homes, right? So I think Article 6, I'm not really sure how it worked, but it was kind of up for a re, renegotiation or re-examining in Cancun. So... Um, one of the things before the actual conference started in Cancun was this uh, conference called the Conference of Youth. Which, so all the youth dele delegations like us from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they all got together before the conference started for this Conference of Youth. And we sort of pooled our resources together and decided, um, you know, what, what sort of messaging do we want? Um, what, what kind of things are we aspiring for? Um, and so this Article 6 was one thing that jumped out really, really quickly because... It was, we knew that it was going to be negotiated at the conference. And, and so, and so um, our envoy to the UN actually let us know that they're looking for input um, from various working groups on you know, the actual text of Article 6. So a lot of youth got together and they actually um, submitted text um, to the UN body um, while Article 6 was being negotiated. And a lot of it got accepted. And, um, and so that actually, what sort of the end product of that is... Um, that countries should be setting up official youth delegates, and I think that's how it was back in the day. I'm not too sure on that, but countries should actually have official youth delegates that they're sending to the UN instead of like what our role was, just kind of this voluntary thing. We're not part of the official government delegation or whatever. Um, so that passed. Um, now what that actually means, who knows? I mean, who knows how Canada is going to take Article 6? I mean, what we'd like to see is we would like to see, you know, government funding, you know, setting set up for us to go every year yeah every every conference not not only the climate change conferences but the conference on biodiversity you know all these big big conferences that are all very important right um, so um, that's sort of one good thing that that we felt was you know a positive outcome of Cancun was this article six um, and now onto the bad which is a whole lot of stuff um, <clears throat> I guess uh, the one thing that, that we all felt very passionate about as a youth delegation um, was, the, was the concept of, of RED and, uh, and the role of forestry in climate change. Um, I guess I should have a precursor here is that I'm, I'm not a climate expert. I'm not, I'm not a climate scientist. And it, it, uh, you know, it's really hard to understand the complexities of this issue. Of this issue. You know, there's just so much to understand. And uh, I'm just going to be, like, barely skimming the surface here. But the concept of, of RED, it's uh, if you can... If I had a board here, actually, I don't have any slides. I should apologize. We had a hard drive failure, so I apologize for that. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I lost all my pictures, which is pretty sad. Um, anyways, red, red stands for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest de degradation. So if you're looking at how a country measures its greenhouse gas emissions, typically we think of, let's say, a coal-fired power plant or emissions from our cars or, you know, some such uh, thing like that. Um, and if we look at that, it's pretty standard. You know, Canada, America, China, you know, we're at the top of the list. But if you think about uh, forestry, you know, that really changes the picture because our forests are obviously very important sources and sinks of carbon dioxide. Um, and so when you count for forestry emissions and land degradation, it actually puts the country of Indonesia at like number three worldwide of the most, of the biggest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, the country of Indonesia, which is because of their forestry practices, uh, palm oil plantation being a big one, you know, and deforestation in general. Um, so yeah, uh, red as a, as a sort of policy issue was really being touted before before Cancun even started, it was being advertised as like, this is going to be something that's important. You know, this is going to be a breakthrough at Cancun is this policy of red because we're actually, the UN is trying to incorporate forestry practices into the negotiations. And so, um, you know, right away we're like, okay, you know, we kind of have, we're, we're kind of skeptical, right? So we went into that with the skepticism and uh, sure enough, what, what we came to conclude as a youth delegation was that red was, uh, it's a market-based solution, and uh, I mean, it's it's essentially a false solution, and for for various reasons. Um, first of all, is because it it really it doesn't establish any baselines. Um, so what that means is, well, actually, what I should say is that it actually doesn't define what a forest is, which is a big problem. So if we're trying to protect forests in, in around the world, and we don't have a definition of what a forest is, how are we going to protect it? So um, keep that in mind. So essentially what red is, is so you have a country, a country like Brazil with a lot of rainforests, and there's a country like Canada that has a lot of emissions. So under red, a country like Canada could pay money to Brazil because we're emitting and we can't afford to stop emitting, so instead we're going to pay money to Brazil to not cut their forests down. Um, and so um, it sounds good, right? We're, um, we can still you know, burn our fossil fuels, but we're protecting this forest around the world that's going to absorb those carbon emissions. Um, but the problem is, is that there's no sort of, there's no establishment of how that money gets distributed. Um, look, for instance, do you just pay it in one lump sum? So we don't cut the forest down this year. We're going to give you X amount of money for that. However, next year, the forest is still standing and we're still burning emissions. Um, so should we pay them again? Should the money be distributed, you know, over time? You know, those sort of sorts of things were not established under red. And then the biggest part for the delegation that we didn't agree with um, was the issue of indigenous rights. So we have this tribe in Brazil that's making its living a very traditional lifestyle off of the forest, right? And suddenly this company from Canada comes in and say, okay, we're going to buy this forest. Um, and, uh, you know, these people who live in the forest in their traditional lifestyle, you don't have any say about it. Um, and so it's just kind of a, another colonial imposition upon them, which which is important because, you know, climate change often gets um, described as an environmental issue where fundamentally it's a human rights issue. For instance, it's just, just like this in red. Um, so that's, that's sort of one, one aspect of it. Um, yeah. Um. Yeah, and then that just kind of keeps on going with with red is you know the indigenous people living there and um, 
say this company comes in and says we're going to buy the land, and the indigenous people are going to they're going to protest and say, no, this is our forest. Um, we want to live here. We want to continue our lifestyle. However, we have the the next problem with red, which I mentioned before, is that there's no there's no agreed upon definition of what a forest is. So this company is going to come down, or this company will come down. They'll they'll clear the land, they'll clear the forest, and they'll set up a palm oil plantation or a sugarcane plantation or something to that effect, and uh, and it will still be considered a forest under red. And so it's just kind of another further, um, you know, imposition of indigenous rights, which is which is really bad. So as youth delegation, that was one of our important messages in Cancun. It was like we don't agree with red, you know, and the. The unfortunate part that we felt was that all the countries really got behind it, and uh, um, except Bolivia, of course, as Jen mentioned, um, Bolivia was adamantly against red, um, and a lot of the sort of carbon market solutions that were being proposed there. Um, so that was one thing. Um, uh, and I guess the other thing I really wanted to mention was, um, you know, because it's, it's World Water Day today, and I think uh, it's worth mentioning that. Um, and the issue of water in general with climate change is obviously a very important. Um, a very important issue to take very seriously, right? Um, because climate change, one of the things that's obviously going to affect in southern Alberta is our supply of water. Um, and uh, the interesting thing that I that I noticed in Cancun was um, there was there was a lot of lobbying, a lot of like oil and gas representatives um, down, and they're you know touting like technologies like carbon capture and sequestration. You know, CCS was a very important part of the Cancun agreements, uh, really essential. And, uh, and the natural gas industry, um, which natural gas is really being proposed as a solution to climate change because burning natural gas emits far less uh, carbon emissions than, than you know, coal or traditional sources, right? Um, but, you know, the, the interesting thing that we came across was that it depends on what research you look at. Yes, the natural gas will burn less, but if you incorporate the carbon emissions associated with, um, you know, setting up the infrastructure for natural gas, um, you know, and just just the general changes like that, it, it, it kind of balances out. Um, it's still there's still a lot of greenhouse gas emissions associated with natural gas. But the biggest problem, obviously, with natural gas is the effect it has on our water. And uh, I'm sure a lot of you in the room are already aware of uh, natural gas issues here in southern Alberta. Um, natural gas fracking is you know a really really destructive um, process that's it's been happening in Alberta for years already, and there's currently a you know, a big push out on the blood reserve for uh, for more fracking. Um, and if, if you're not aware, uh, fracking is basically the, it's a way of getting the natural gas out of the bedrock underground. Where they're injecting, they're drilling a hole and they're injecting all these chemicals down. And uh, and to, to extract the natural gas, except the chemicals are sort of remaining in our water table and, you know, who knows where they end up eventually. Um, and it's probably going to affect people negatively. And there there is documented evidence um, of, of this in, in the states and in, in Alberta here, um, and you know the effects it's having on people's health, which you know is a really, really something that we need to you know we need to act on. We need we need to push for proper regulation of, of natural gas fracking. So that's another thing that a lot of us noticed right away is was that natural gas is really being explored as a viable alternative um, to like coal-fired power. And it basically is a solution to climate change, which, you know, really threw up our alarm bells. Um, now, I should also say that, you know, generally going into Cancun, Canada had a pretty poor reputation um, going in because of our, our past behavior at Copenhagen um, in general and just our, our national strategy on climate change basically doesn't exist. There is no strategy. Um, it's more of a strategy of denial. Um, and so that's, 
as as a youth delegate, you know, it was kind of it was hard for me to digest the role that I played as a youth delegate. That I had to I had to go down to this international conference of you know thousands of people from all over the world gathering there, and I was supposed to be there to represent youth, um, which you know that's a big pill for me to swallow because I you know I can't say that I've spoken to all the youth, you know. But the general sense that I got from Cancun and the general sense that I get from, from my peers is, uh, is just a general loss of faith in, in the political system, in, in the Harper government, and just, just the system itself. And we're, we're not satisfied with it. Um, Cancun just kind of perpetuated that. You know, we understand the, the role that the international negotiations play, but at the same time, the, the will is not there. Um, the people want want this to happen, they want a treaty, um, and they want effective leadership, but it's not there. Um, and so we came away from that really sort of disenchanted and, uh, you know, really almost angry at, at the whole situation. And that was kind of, that's amplified on, you know, several years of this happening. Um, I don't know if, if Rick's going to talk about Copenhagen at all. Um, Copenhagen was, it was advertised as the most important gathering of world leaders in the history of humanity which is it's a pretty big, because everyone expected Copenhagen to produce this binding you know, treaty that's going to deal with climate change, right? And of course that never happened. And um, the result of Copenhagen alone was that people became so disenfranchised that they kind of abandoned the whole, what you might call the climate justice movement. And that really affected us in Cancun, because those people who played an essential role in organizing and you know, bringing the youth together and you know, really driving them driving them on, those people are no longer, no longer there because they felt that, you know, that disenfranchisement. Um, and so the reason I'm bringing this up is because when, when we talk about natural gas fracking on the reserve here, it's the same thing happening again. It's, it's, it's government and industry taking advantage of uh, that disenfranchised or disempowered feeling among the, pe- among the people, and they're not, they're not utilizing public consultation, um, and they're, they're not utilizing democracy, to put it frankly, and uh, they're just kind of pushing an objective or an agenda that, you know, we don't agree with and science doesn't agree with, I might say. So um, I'm going to end it there because I'm kind of ranting and I'm, I'm getting a little angry, which um, honestly, that, that, that is one of, the, one of the messages that I really wanted to bring you today. Is the youth of the, of the delegation, but, but the youth that I know around town that I went there to represent, we're all really angry. We're all really like, you know, what is wrong with the system? Why can't we do this? So that's kind of the main message I wanted to give. Um, and uh, yeah, that's all I want to say. Thank you. Come on, technology. There it is. Okay. Thanks, Stephen. Um, I'm going to take a bit of a different bet on this, and I'm just going to, first of all, just take you through what Mexico kind of looked like. And um, because I don't talk as well as I, um, well, sometimes produce video, I'm not going to talk so much. I'm going to let you watch a few videos just so you can kind of see um, what it was like over there. Um, but first of all, this site here called CanChange.ca um, was created uh, in a partnership with the Canadian Wildlife Federation. Rick and I had been working with them over the last couple of years. And when we were in Copenhagen, it was with the CWF as well, to look at how education plays a role in climate change. And so we came up with the term um, canchange.ca from a, uh, the, the Copenhagen uh, conference. There was a, a conference on the side that was titled Can Education 
change the climate. And we thought we'd spin it around and say education can change the climate. And so that's, that's the philosophy we take it from, where we should be teaching kids at an early age the science, the responsibility, the social responsibility of the things that we're now talking about. And if we would have been doing this 40 years ago, maybe we wouldn't be in the same position that we're in today. So what we're doing is, is we're using technology like websites for teachers to get a hold of content so that they can show it to their students so students can get engaged and, and um, perhaps get involved in this process. Um, so canchange.ca is basically a site that is housing mostly um, media. Um, there's a journal section here where people did um, blogs and, and journaling about what it was like while they were there. Um, there are bios of the people from the Canadian Wildlife Federation that were there. There are some photos here of just kind of the area we were at. There's the booth areas. We discovered later that actually the CWF booth was right beside the youth delegate booth and we never actually even clicked with the youth delegates were. But there's some good pictures here just so you can kind of see what, um, what it looks like there, what the, what the locations were like. There's us shooting some, some um, documentary footage that we were doing um, in cenotes and, and just kind of um, around the um, conference itself, but we tended not to spend as much time as the con at the conference as we did in the environment in Mexico, just looking at how they deal with water for the most part, because that's really what we were focusing on is the water in the area. Um, there are, you know, articles from, from what had happened down there. There's also a lot of documents. There are lesson plans for teachers, those kinds of things. So teachers can go to this site and go through and look at what they can use in their classrooms. The last section is the video section, and that's the one where we spend a lot of time on. So there are a few videos that we did on a daily basis. There are online journals that um, some of the people from the CWF who are in the conference halls more often just pulled people aside, just got little snippets from them in French and in English, whatever language they wanted to speak it in, they could because it was an international conference. We also lucked out, um, John Barrett stopped by. Um, so if you want to see a minute and a half of John Baird talking about climate change and Canada's position on it um, is, is on that site. Um, what we also tried to do with this site was make it a bilingual site. Because the CWF is a bilingual organization, most times you go to a website that says English or click French on the top right-hand corner and everybody, you go to the French site and it's just French, there's no English. And we've decided as a bilingual organization that's not appropriate and that we should have French and English on the same page. And so that kids who go to this site can be exposed to both languages and can watch something in French or watch something in English. They shouldn't be. We decided that what most people do is actually segregate the languages. We're trying to amalgamate the languages. So on all of our videos, if there's a French person talking, there's an English subtitle. If there's an English person talking, there's a French subtitle. That way there's just one video for people to watch. And it just seemed more appropriate. So what I'm going to do is just run through a couple of videos with you here. And the first one um, is basically the um, layout of... It was done on the first day when we were there. When we went to Copenhagen, I got there for the second week. Rick was there for the first week. And during the first week, it tends to be not as much activity happening. Slow negotiations, not much until the second week when all the big guns get there. And in Copenhagen, it was the last week where the big guns started to show up. And I didn't get there until the Monday of the second week. We stood in line. I stood in line for four hours and when I'm done with this, and I went out shooting. Uh, two of the other delegates with me stayed in line eight hours that whole day, still didn't get in, came back the next day. I think it was Rick Bates stayed for eight hours the second day before he finally got in. Because they had all the NGOs and all the negotiations happening in the same building. 
and they had overbooked the building. So a lot of the NGOs did not get in. They needed the space for the, for the negotiators. So I never did get into the building in Copenhagen. So I just spun around Copenhagen and did stuff. It was way more fun, way more interesting. Got to Mexico, and like Stephen was talking about, um, I got there in the second week, and I walked in to get my pass. Now, they had laid it out differently, where the NGOs were in a different building, and I'll show you that in a second, and the negotiations happened in a separate building. So there were fewer people vying for that same space. But when I got to, to, to sign in, there was nobody in line. I just walked right through, got my pass, and, and through. So there was, the numbers were significantly lower in Mexico because, as Stephen pointed out, the expectations were lower. But I'll roll this video for you just so you can kind of see what it is, uh, the places we were, and, uh, and how it all kind of played out. Oh, that's not good. This is the 16th video as well for the CWF at the same time over there because they're working um, with donors and they're making sure that the message about what they're doing is getting out there through some of these videos. So some of the message does tend to get tamed a little bit. Um, 
and as she said at the end there, we, we, we're dealing with a lot of water. And so after the first day, we, um, we were at the, at the Cancun Nets, kind of did our shooting there. And then we went, well, let's just kind of go around and let's take a look at how the Yucatan Peninsula deals with water. And so we found this really interesting system of how water works there. And the first one is the cenotes. And cenotes are basically underground water wells. And um, that's where you get all the stalagmites and stalactites. And it's very picturesque. And actually, there's just a couple of pictures here. I won't throw the, through the whole video. But just so you can kind of see what this place looks like. This place called Rio Secreto we went to. And it's, um, it's basically this big underground um, waterway. Oh, it's a little dark to see that in there, I guess. Um, so the idea is the water, in many cases, starts there and works its way out to the ocean. And it's the reef. It's the coral reef that everybody's trying to protect because the coral reef in that area really is the engine for, for the economy because it's tourism that brings most people to that area. Development in that area has happened so fast over the last 40 years, and that's really when it started. 40 years ago was when they started to build all those big um, behemoth hotels. Um, that they've started to see a lot of degradation in the reef. And they talk about uh, climate change as being a huge issue because the temperature has raised a couple of degrees. The coral reef is having some huge issues dealing with that heat, so a lot of coral reef is dying. But another issue they're having there is because of these huge um, uh, resorts in the construction, what used to be mangroves, and mangroves are like wetlands here. They're huge wetlands with huge trees, and it's a huge water purification system. What used to get purified in the mangroves just goes straight out into the ocean now and goes straight to those coral reefs. And so you'll see in a second here, the reefs are basically just covered with algae because there's all the nutrients in the water that have come from what used to get purified in the mangroves. So the cenotes are there. The water goes from the cenotes, in many cases, into the, into the mangroves. Uh, all the runoff from the streets, those kinds of things, used to go into the mangroves. But now those mangroves are being destroyed, and the reef is being destroyed um, because of it. So the next video I'll show you is about kind of the water systems that they have there. Um, and one of the things that whenever we do these kinds of educational videos, we want to be able to engage the audience. And um, Rick and I were talking about this the other day. Um, and in order for us to engage people, we need to have a living being that we are engaged with. For us to look at a, a, you know, a, a, a river or isn't as engaging as looking at a person because we as humans are built to be engaged with other people and to attach ourselves to other people and be empathetic to other people or to animals. Um, so what we try and do is we try and show animals that people can go, oh, isn't that cute, so that they'll start thinking about what it is that they're doing that is making life harder on that animal, whether it be a fish, whether it be a whale. Uh, we just did some whale watching last summer, same kinds of things. We're trying to get people to engage. So um, in this video, this was, um, we headed out to the, the reef just outside of Puerto Morales and did some shooting out there. Man, that's big Two million people in four countries. It draws tourists from all over the world, 
in Mexico that, um, and Rick can talk more about this because he's had more uh, information on that, about attitudes changing in Mexico. And they're doing uh, more environmentally friendly things now than, than they used to. But in Canada, um, it's interesting because, you know, Stephen was talking about the issues that are with our politicians, but our politicians tend to do what we tell them to do. It may take a little while for them to get there, and it may be that they get knocked out of an election in order to do that, but that's what their job is supposed to be. When we were in Copenhagen beforehand, um, we talked with some of the people there about the differences in attitudes uh, in Europe compared to Canada. One of the huge differences is um, water consumption. Um, we did a series a little while ago called Water Under Fire, where we looked, we went across the country and we talked about you know, some of the water issues that are happening in Canada. And Canadians use, on average, almost 350 um, liters a day of water, where Europeans are about half that. Uh, and it could be because of the price of water. There's actually a, an article that came out today about the issues of water and um, just attitudes. And it, and it said that Albertans are the most likely in, in Canada just to start flushing stuff down the toilet because they don't know that it's a big issue that we waste water on a regular basis. Quebecers, apparently, are the least likely to do that, which I was kind of surprised. 
Um, we also don't talk a lot about, you know, how much we pay for water. And maybe that's why it's an issue. Does anybody know what their water bill is? How much you pay a month for water? I was surprised. Um, when we did the series, we had heard that in Vancouver, they are just, um, they just have a straight bill. Everybody pays $25 a month, and I thought, that's really low. People should be paying more. When, in fact, I went back and I just checked my bill, and I paid $27 a month. And I went, oh, okay, so it's not a big deal. And this came to roost when I have an 18-year-old son, and when he was living at home, anybody know how long 18-year-olds shower for? And he would just stay in the shower, and I go, get out of the shower, you're wasting water. I go, do you know how, have any idea how much water costs? And he goes, no. And I go, well, let's go find out. And I go, you're going to pay 10% of the bill, 250 a month. <laughs> that slowed him down. Stop taking those long showers. So it's not a deterrent. So, you know, one of the issues we have is just, you know, if it doesn't cost a lot, we don't tend to value it. We don't tend to look at it as something that we should be saving. Um, when we were in Ken or in Copenhagen, attitudes are a little different. Um, on that site, we've also got all the Copenhagen videos that we did, and so I'm just going to play one of them, and just to kind of show kind of the differences in attitudes that we have about how we deal with the environment. Learn from others 
but in some cases are a little further ahead than we are in terms of understanding those impacts and how we can do it. We had a, a, a funny thing happen the other day. Um, there was an email from a, a channel. It's called the Wet, it's called the Water Channel in the Netherlands, and um, somehow they got a hold of one of our webisodes that we did. There's a series of webisodes also on this on this website about water that we've done over the last couple of years, um, and there's also uh, PSAs that are running on a lot of the um, the specialty channels across Canada. Over the last six months, we've had like 4,500 airings of these PSAs that. Um, are about water. And what we did was we did a series of 30-second, um, 60-second, and five-minute webisodes on water. Uh, there was this one on surface water, groundwater, uh, conserving and protecting water. Um, what else was it? Surface ground. What's that? Right. Right. So there's five different five different um, components. And and what's funny is one of the, the the one that has one of the most views on this water channel is our groundwater 60-second PSA. And I don't know about you, but you know I know my kids are all going for the groundwater PSAs when they go into YouTube. But over there, it's getting huge views, and it's because, well, I'm assuming it's because there's a difference in attitude. People are actually looking for information like that. So the whole idea of education being part of this at a, at a early age, I think, is a, is a really important thing. And I'm not a scientist either. What I do is I, I hear from scientists. And I've been fortunate enough over the last few years to talk with some really interesting scientists and very smart people about what's going on. And it's amazing the things that you learn if you just listen. So um, I think I'm going to stop there. And I think I'm going to pass it on to Rick. Um, and he can continue on. As you see, we played different roles. Some have known me in a number of different roles, from the, the science education, the science part, etc. Talking earlier about a water conference that we put on at the University of Lethbridge in 1991, uh, our co-producer of the Water Under Fires series. That was the first time that Jim had actually presented at the university. He was just a young buck that was getting started, etc. And uh, I don't think he remembers that. But all of us go through you know, time and place. And one of the things that, uh, certainly for me, is an evolution. And that evolution, as we were talking about, leads up to like, basically Cancun. So what? what? What did we learn there? What was different in, in all of this process? What does it mean? And so I'm going to try and walk you through this. You know, one of the things that we talk about is, uh, and I'm going to cut to the quick on this, you know, we talk about the drivers of change. I'm not going to get into the specific science of it. We've got thousands of scientists that do research in these areas. We have very credible information that you can draw on. But one of the biggest challenges I have had in classrooms at the university and through K-12 systems, I've written a lot of that, <clears throat> how we've got 20th century uh, curricula, because I don't think our curriculum has come into the 21st century yet even though we talk about 21st century learners, is it's always this accumulation of facts, figures, knowledge, per se. But we really haven't gone through the action part to translate the knowledge into wisdom. So what we have to do is, what are those key elements that, because we talked about the complexity of Cancun. It is very complex. And these are snapshots, by the way. We talk about Copenhagen, Cancun. That's nothing. That's not where the work happens. That's where the politicians get together to agree on this. All the work happens in between. So I'm going to talk about 
what comes out of places like Istanbul, where representing doing presentations for the Canadian Wildlife Federation there, that's the World Water Forum. I mean, this is the largest forum. Why Istanbul? Well, because you're just about to see an outbreak of a war between Turkey and its neighbors to the south because of the fact they have 75 new dams going up that cut off little things that go back in time like Tigris, Euphrates. You know, you might recognize some of those from history. And the other one is Barcelona, the IUCN. Because again, making mention of that one, International Union for the Conservation of Nature. That's one of the real workhorses in all of this translating, not the global emissions component. Because that's all people think about. And so as we go through this, we've got a number of these different variables. Well, the one that I'm starting to focus on more and more is back to, to my roots. Is I can call on the scientists, and fortunately, like George, we've dealt with so many incredible people, David Schindler et al. But how do you translate that for consumption? This has been the greatest frustration over the last 35 years. And the other day when Stephen was asked me, how do you stay positive? And how do you keep going when a lot of people go, not a problem for me. I mean, look outside. Warming. Everybody wants warmth. Saves you traveling down to Florida and being all those crowds. Right? So great. But what does that really mean for us? The bottom line is, you know, sorry, climate change is for real. And the one that I went back to just put up here, you know, I can remember this time edition said, be worried, be very worried. And yet one of my colleagues, a scientist from Calgary that we do have on not just the, the water series, but we did a three-part series before that on global change, which was an award-winning series, wonderful. We get it approved for use in the school, social studies, science. Oh, yeah, one big problem. How many of you still have a VCR? It was on VCR, literally. In two and a half years, it was gone because it didn't keep up with the technology. So that's our other challenge. How do we keep up with that? One thing we learned from the Copenhagen experience and these other conferences that George pointed out, number one, you know, you saw one of my colleagues on there from Aarhus University. I hadn't had a chance to work with him for, since about 1993, 94. And when we sort of go like that, we were leaders in some of these areas of environmental education research. But the one thing that they did in Denmark was they took a step aside is they didn't focus on environmental education. They didn't focus on the science, they focused on people. And so it's the first time when the sustainability aspect really came into play. And so already we're starting to go, aha, this is where we've missed it a little bit, because when we tried to bring sustainability into Canada, basically sort of 1995 to 2000 period, um, we stumbled over a word, development. Leave it off of the word sustainability. Because as soon as you throw the development on there, it conjures up all these other interpretations, most of them not good, like gross national project. It is really gross. It can't continue to grow and grow and grow. Right? It's a finite system. Sorry, unless somebody changes something, and heaven forbid, I don't want to see that with a major comet because the dinosaurs left us last time that happened. Just a theory. So... One of the things that we're learning as we're moving toward Cancun is we've got to get back to some of the principles of education for sustainability. But these are the ones that people always talked about. Envisioning a better future, critical thinking, reflection, participation, and partnerships for change. Wonderful. Guess what? Our NGOs in this province are second to none. 
I mean, I've been just so blessed over the last 30 plus years of working and helping establish a lot of great ones. But why hasn't it had any influence? Well, one thing is it's about transformation and change. So that education process has got to get right into the boardrooms, it's got to get to the politicians, etc. So we have to start affecting youth by a different level. Education for all and the lifelong learning. The public service announcements, 4,550 showings in a six-month period. Most of those were the one minute. 30 seconds, here's the issues. One minute, here's the issues, and here's something you can do about it. Wow. And the majority are that one. Conserve and protect happens to be the one here in North America that they're showing more often than not. North America is because it's showing Canada and the United States, even though we actually have the Spanish going as well. But we didn't get the promotion that we needed down in Mexico because the president of Mexico usurped us. Anybody know what one of the most positive things that happened in Mexico was? What would you say? from the political element. Who did you see front and center more often than not? Stephen? You bet. Every single day. And from a colleague from, that was talking about this, seeing it in Mexico City, he couldn't get out to the site, but 24-7, playing all the challenges that they face in Mexico, what they're doing about it, and just watching just the fervor of the people that we were staying with, for example, in, in the area. I mean, they were blowing us away. They were already into composting and all the rest of it. And we come back to Lethbridge and we're going, well, hey, we do have composting at the University of Lethbridge. But systems thinking. We have to get people. We've always talked about this, the global versus the local action, right? I'm sorry. Most of us know very little about systems because we tend to focus on what is right here. And we don't understand. We talk about two degrees change, talk about global warming. We're talking about oceans, folks. Those oceans are your driving engines for your weather. The weather the large components here and the climate. So, you know, get people to understand that. Quit fighting over the global emissions thing, because you're all talking percentages, which is a bunch of crap. What percentages? What benchmarks? What figures? Talking megatons. Talking something you can measure and actually equate. That's one of the other problems we have in terms of understanding this. So we've been fortunate because I go back to about 1984 and working with uh, CWF and what they were trying to do at the time, we brought in things like Project Wild, Wilderness and Living Design, incredible program in the schools, all built around the experiential element and transforming that. Southern Alberta, you probably know of uh, fish and wildlife programs, used to be here, conservation, hunter education programs, and the like. All of those got kids outside. They got them to understand a bit about nature. And, sorry, but with the hunting piece, the one thing they did start talking about was also management, wildlife management. You know, whether we liked it or not, they had to understand that component. Because once you start meddling with this stuff, you can't just step back and let it go unless you really want to let it go. The bottom line is CWF, 335,000 supporters, teachers, kids, they have, at least in my experience over those number of years, is they have always run true to what they have identified. And so they've rethought this 
And you saw on the logos at the front, basically water, habitat, climate change. Those components, and with, with the habitat component endangered species being closely aligned. It's trying to bring that message out. Well, one of the things that came back after that, and I just popped this one up here, we're so fortunate here because SACPA is here. A lot of places don't have SACPAs. So when I shared that, and we were talking about this one, happened to be up in Grand Prairie. And so they started putting on community forums. And the natural channels, of course, being teachers, etc. But more and more and more, what we saw evolving here, which now in Cancun you're going to see come to fruition, so for us and what we've been trying to do, you have your presentations, you have the factual components in any of these kinds of uh, venues. But where is your real interaction? George was just saying, well, I wonder where that other piece came from. We actually tracked it down. It was stuff that we were doing in Barcelona at the IUCN conference. And people picking up on something that we just took for granted. We didn't get the chance to talk and dialogue, which is why I'm going to really move through this quickly so we get that chance. Building on. Building on. And that's why after uh, Copenhagen had the chance to represent uh, University of Lethbridge at a conference in Austin, Texas, that was basically saying, okay, what of that? Within that conference, it led up nicely to Cancun because it was reflective for us again. What went on in Austin was the U.S. trying to tell good stories, trying to build around case studies of things that were good and the things that actually have been accomplished. That's something that wasn't in Copenhagen, definitely not. I mean, half the time we were looking for a place to hide under the tables, but Prentice and the Prime Minister were already there. Uh, so, sorry my facetiousness. That's not a U of L comment, that's Rick's comment, okay? Um, it, 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 was, it was really sad, because traveling back and forth to the venue each day, I'm looking at these wind generators, all 18 of them out there. I'm going, 18? Try 180 of them. I mean, travel from here through the Pincher Creek, but are they on the grid? Never did get an answer to that one. There are some good positive things. So Cancun, what came out of Cancun? People were talking about science in the previous one. This one was not about the science. This one was about social responsibility. That's one of the biggest things that came out in some of those things. How to involve the youth? What are our responsibilities in basically putting some funding in it? ahead for 2030. I mean, it was way, way off, you know, that 2020 to 2030 period, but for some of the younger people, it's not that far off for that. And so one of the changes for us in coming back, George has already gone through the site for you, but so what, why here? <clears throat> you ever seen this little diagram? Okay, oil production. Guess what, folks? We're here. So if you think the pressures on the oil sands are going to decrease, I don't think so. Which means we have a splendid opportunity. For those that were at uh, Jeffrey Simpson's presentation at the university the other day, saying we have a chance to be leaders. And so this is one of the other things. Let's look for some of these opportunities. So carbon tax is coming, folks. All that uh, cap and trade shuffling, etc. I can tell you from a meeting a couple of weeks ago with the Deputy Minister of Environment for Canada, paper stuff's gone. It's going to be regulatory 
and it's going to be within a nine-year period because we signed off on something in Copenhagen that basically was benchmarked for 2020. Now, how do you do that without spiraling your economy down in the vortex? Okay? There's got to be some dialogue going on. I threw this one up there just so that you realize, because by 2030, for example, saying that China will need 99 million barrels of oil a day. Right now, the world currently produces 79 million barrels per day. So all the oil in the world will not meet China's needs. So something has to change. Why, yes, okay, quickly get past this. Anybody that's been to the north, has friends in the north, has probably seen photographs like this. It's there. The permafrost melting, it's, it's incredible. Some of the stuff that has been shown in this last year, it just makes your jaw drop when you realize they're probably going to be moving some of the northern settlements and have to move them physically because the stability of the ground isn't there for the transportation, for their infrastructure. Everything's gone. It's being destroyed. And for here, we say two to four and a half degrees. Hey, we could use that. That'd be great. Think about it again in the middle of summer because we are just talking about this. The wet will become wetter. The dry will become drier. And so it's those optimum periods. We'll still get precipitation. But how do we manage that precipitation when it's here? Gone. Okay? There's going to be all those challenges because this one thing on the moisture deficit, you sort of recognize that province component. You see the one, the dark brown. We live there. So, but the good side, right? Wind. Second fastest growing energy supply. So again, what did Cancun tell us? Let's focus on some of the positive stuff. What can we do? What can we build on? I had, uh, and it's nice seeing a, a Dean Emeriti from the faculty here that will actually remember back to some of these things. But I challenged uh, Howard Tennant the other day uh, on the carbon tax components and saying, you know, one of the problems that we have is we haven't got our head around the carbon tax properly because there's got to be enough brain power in Alberta to figure out how we can have a carbon tax and yet keep the majority of the money in the province working on these challenges that we need to look at, like how can we make any of these elements sustainable regarding the tar sands? Because like I said, it's not going to go away. The pressures are going to increase. So let's do something now. Let's start moving ahead. What are the alternatives? And here we get all of this stuff. You know, I can go on and on about what is good. But here's the one I want to leave you with, the real challenge. There's a new rule that I've encountered in a lot of the different NGOs, a lot of the scientific community, that are saying something along this line. There's a difference between problem solving and problem switching. And that's this whole thing over carbon sequestering. All right, how long is that going to last for you? Because guess what? The majority of the production doesn't happen in the areas that you can actually pump this back down. So how are you going to deal with that transportation issue? Because that's becoming a, a major concern for a lot of us right now. So let's get back to some basics on this. Someone asked me the other day, well, where do you go for information? You know something? We have someone just right to the north of us, and there's, there's a lot of information here at University of Lethbridge. We haven't quite organized it in a way that's easy for consumption and people getting in and finding the information they need on demand. The Ben Institute is phenomenal. They really do a great job in trying to you know, break that information down. So whether, because this is one of the things about this community, you know, we go from one extreme to the other. 
get to Calgary. Thank you very much, but I like living here. Why do I like living here? We have the same demands, though. Because this is one of the things that we really have to start thinking about, is how our community can start engaging in this. What has happened for me from Cancun? I've got a whole list of what we're doing at the university, what we're doing within our classrooms, etc. We, in 83 to 85, had pushed the government very hard to set up a center of excellence for environmental education. Unfortunately, the flavor of the month changed to gifted education, and then we subsequently, remember this time period, we lost that one to Calgary. But the action didn't stop. There's always been really good things going. Helen Schuler Center. I mean, we take those things for granted. And in the beginning of the days, we were still pushing for these kinds of things. There's been a huge impact, recognizing the need for action, set the goals, create plans, implement programs. You can go down everything from Leeds buildings, etc. We keep forgetting just how much we have been able to do. Except I will challenge, and this is what we've done now at the university, is that with these buildings, we finally have the first time a strategic plan for the university, that's five pillars, and one of those happens to be environmental sustainability. Seamus O'Shea still doesn't speak to me. 30 plus years I fought to hit the environmental someplace in there. Because when times are tough, what gets cut? It's all the periphery. You start building that into the infrastructure that you have. Because you've heard Mike Mann, Dr. Mann, talking about the engagement with community. That's the other thing. We're partway there. But we haven't acknowledged a lot of our students, the amount of volunteer work they do is phenomenal. When you can actually start taking a look at what you do accomplish in your community, it's not that bad. Okay, we are making some progress. But one of the biggest challenges that we do have, and this is certainly with the Environmental Sustainability Committee, you know, we talked about the lighting and all of this. It's second to none. But within these five pillars I just talked about, build internal community and enhance relationships with external communities. We have overlooked, and that's why that blackboard that you saw on the website that we have put together, the one part, the only time I have to admit in the last 20 since we had the Environmental Council of Alberta disbanded and all our PAC, our public committees basically disbanded, the only time I felt censorship was George is looking at me, how much am I going to tell? Not much, George. However, when you are a Canadian delegate, all of this does go through the office of the Prime Minister. And so there was great fear and intrepidation on behalf of CWF that here goes Rick and George, they're going to come up, ask people for their views, and someone's going to put up on this website some nasty note which is then going to be a black eye for the organization. So basically they didn't let us do what I planned on doing. I wanted to roll this out to the university students and the college students before we left. And we're going to do it in four universities across Canada. Because that youth, that youth right over there, those are our future leaders. And we need to engage them in that conversation because they're frustrated as all get out. It's Stephen shared with you. I talked to my daughter, 22 years old, goes down to Africa for five weeks, and that is sort of like this, helping in an orphanage, but it's, it's a safe environment, it's just outside Rwanda. And the kids that she's working with, yeah, they're, they're pretty good kids, but half of them happen to be child soldiers, you know, a couple years ago. And that's uh, where, oh my gosh. And she came back, 
a changed young lady. She'd always been involved in all these different things, but it was in her face. Dealing with people, young people, women that had two and three children that were diagnosed with AIDS that were not going to see another year. Dealing with the poverty to the extreme. We've traveled to a lot of poverty-stricken areas, but there was such a point to where, you know, we take a look at all of this stuff, and we forgot one of the big things. And this is why it really hit me. We're actually doing something up in Nunavut with the CWF this coming summer, uh, a summer institute for teachers. The one piece that was identified back in Copenhagen by my colleagues in Denmark, <clears throat> in terms of sustainability, the only place they could actually find documentation for this, and that was in Nunavut. And the statement was, the fundamental belief is that the connectedness which individuals feel for each other and their environmental sorry, their environment ultimately determines personal character and value to the community. In Nunavut, this is the definition of sustainability. I was ticked. You've never been to southern Alberta. The agronomy base, the resource-based component, this is how people have felt for the last hundred years. So, come on, folks. There, there are these good things happening. 2012, we're going to have a conference in Calgary. It's going to be built around the Alberta Water Institute, working with them, and someone that knows these names, like David Hill and those folks that go way back in time. And talking about water in a world of 7 billion. Now, how are we going to be able to move towards something like that conference? They have just finished, just released, the AWI just released a, a paper, a significant paper, on the action taken by water shareholders and stakeholders in Calgary dealing with the bull and consumption on the bull. No input fusion of funding from the government. Done through NGOs, through everything from city hall through to academics, etc. And they have worked on problem-solving strategies and a list of things that they can do to actually conserve better with their water resources than the bull. So I'm going to leave you with this one. And this was where my lead-in, George Glant, was going to tell you that what do they call that icon that they go after? Frodo. Some may relate to this. In the end, it was two rather ordinary, playful, unassuming hobbits who undertook to save the world despite their fears. They took the future of the world on their shoulders, and all the wizards and kings and warriors could only play a supportive role. What we have learned, at least with CWF from Copenhagen, was that the real leadership is extraordinary courage by ordinary people. Don't wait for politicians to do it for you. And that would be my message today. Thank you. So thank you again to our three speakers, Dr. Mrazek, George Kalanick, and Stephen McGlynn. We're going to shorten the time period for refreshments so that we can have some more time for the questions afterwards. So we have about five minutes for our break. Then we're going to come back and have a question and answer period where you can speak to all three panelists or just fire questions at one individually. All right, so thank you. Have a quick break, and I'll remind everyone to sit back down when it's time. Thank you. And I have bookmarks for folks to I just took three countries as part of, you know, climate change adaptation. Um, and so the question becomes, though, where does that money come from? 
So it, it's $400 million that he's pledged, but is he taking that out of already existing programs that Canada has to um, fund development in other countries and just labeling that as climate change adaptation? Um, and so uh, I guess my, my short answer is that there's $400 million that we know that Harper has, has pledged, but again, that, that could just be other money that he's dedicated already um, and just calling it climate change adaptation. That actually came out of Copenhagen, and I, again, when you say, what is the cost, they say, what are the costs that we don't have? Because here again, don't forget that the monies are apportioned for a time period between 2020 and 2030. So it's sort of out there trying to identify, number one, what are the circumstances where the countries that require the, the most help first? What are the optimum situations where it can be applied to actually mitigate some change? Because unfortunately, with some of those countries that were, were mentioned er earlier, like Indonesia, um, I felt very much that the government is just going to hand the funding over to that government. There has to be a, a reliable source that they can go to. So your point is a good one, but I, I think that's why I'm flipping the question around. Uh, what is it going to cost us unless we do have in those situations? Next question. You mentioned, uh, Rick, uh, that uh, Kyoto has a 2020 um, deadline, or, or 2020 came into your comment. My, my understanding was that 2012 was, was also a big date in the, the Kyoto Protocol. Can you explain uh, what the consequences are of Canada not meeting the 2012 targets, and what, where does 2020 fit in? You have to. Uh, the, the 2012 was a mythical projection, and it's the only thing I have to do a briefing to on one of the aspects of Kyoto. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of thought of how they were going to get there. And so in missing that target, our earlier projections of what would happen, because that two degrees that we talked about, I think everybody's familiar with that one already, is after a two degree Celsius change, is that all the bets are off in terms of the systems as we're projecting them in our modeling. That for some of the things that we think, like the sea, for example, that becomes like the carbon sink, it actually goes the other way around. That it actually starts getting off carbon dioxide, the same thing under it, et cetera. So when we're looking at those models and saying the effect of change, I think what the 2020 does, and again, I, can, I was hoping there would be more information to be shared by the, the federal government by this point, because the Deputy Minister of Environment, Paul, was going around the country trying to gather information, meeting with oil companies, etc., and trying to figure out how the government can meet those projections, and the projections are 17% decreased in 2005. So for those that were at the Jeffrey Simpson lecture, he was saying that our best case scenario for Alberta and the tar sands was an increase of 14% in that time period. What don't people understand about plus and minus? It's going the wrong direction. That one is targeted to the two, two degree self this increase. So for ourselves, the per capita basis of what we have to do is that the bottom line right now, and that's why I made the, the comment that the government has identified cap and trades are 
that they have to work on, and they have actually had some success already in terms of bringing in some of the regulatory components for vehicles, cars, and light trucks. And so now they're trying to figure out how they can accelerate that process in industry without tanking the economy. But they have to bring in strong regulatory components. The, the, the Copenhagen was the 2020 figure. Does the treaty have any um, particular political consequences for failing to meet these targets, or is it just the environmental consequences? That's the, the piece that was lost in translation, is that that's a target. This is a frustration that our, our youth were trying to share, is that's what's supposed to happen in South Africa this coming year. That all these big steps that they're moving forward with, that it is in South Africa coming here that they're supposed to come up with some of those consequences. But here again, we're talking about the countries that you have that are the major players in that. Basically, the United States and one other person across the water, that, or one other group, that's 40%. You know, we keep falling on this. I'm not making any excuses when we say that we have 2% that we're responsible for, yet you translate that in our population, it's one of the highest per capita earnings. So however we want to deal with those, those numbers, I'd say it's we are the ones that should be creating the consequences. And to follow up on Jeffrey Simpson's comment about the Prime Minister not having once actually engaged in the debate related to climate change on home soil, is that maybe we just have to get across to politicians as well back the other way is uh, what consequence for those that aren't willing to start considering environment as one of the main issues in the next election. And it's called Big Picture Thank you. Anyone else? I've been, for the last couple of years, Rick, uh, I've been watching the whole motion of carbon capture and carbon. And I watched the documentary Carbon Hunters and of course most of the people who exist in that and, and also watch the provincial government uh, put aside quite a large chunk of money for some private initiatives to, I guess to experiment and to understand how that works and, uh, and being a bit of a skeptic almost look at it as, as smoke and mirrors. Um, can, you, can you comment on the reality of, of that whole science and uh, the whole carbon, you know, making money off of carbon exchanging carbon taxes and then the investment process and everything that was in that documentary, which I assume you probably have seen, that carbon hunters spend his life after watching that for two hours and shut the TV off. And my head was just kind of going, what? Uh, how can they just create this money, this huge amounts of money out of, really out of nowhere? And is it, is it real? Is it real business and is it real science? Is as a science educator, right? Not as a scientist involved in, in that area. I too look at those things with a lot of skepticism. And one of the things that you have to do is really take a look at your models, the viable components that you can gain some ground with without major sacrifices, again, to the environment, to other aspects. Uh, and one of the in particular is the nuclear industry is that someone can argue, depending on where you live, that it's a stable enough environment, etc. But it's always the what ifs. You're just replacing one very charged element in terms of 
help us in our views toward it with another. I think what had happened initially when that card was starting to be played in terms of the card, they, it was an understanding, and I think it was based actually more so in the forestry components than anything. We talked about the capturing the card. And they said, well, we can just pump it down, because we've been doing it in the oil industry for, for years down south. Yeah, well, we've also lubricated uh, fault lines, and we've said a lot of other things, too, why are we doing that? Because you don't just pump the carbon dioxide down, by the way. You know, there, there are other things you have to use, and in many cases, there is some lubrication aspect to that. So you have to have incredibly stable areas. Well, those stable areas aren't necessarily within proximity that's close enough to be able to tap into it, because it was basically thermal that they were looking at, which is the coal-fired plants. Well, if you take a look at where the coal-fired plants are, they aren't in those areas. Like in the United States, that's the Appalachians. Man, you don't want to start pumping a whole pile of stuff down there. It's like, well, the Turtle Mountain will start playing around, and you know, something's going to slide. So it's that the reality's best-case scenario. But I go back to that one thing where don't replace one problem with another potential problem. If there are some areas you can do that, fine. But don't say, aha, you know, we, we've reached our goal. You've got to keep searching for a viable solution. That's as a science educator. So if I'm dealing with in the classroom, I'm just saying, you know, here is one option that has been presented. What is the turnaround time for that to be viable? What is the cost? Because that's the other part you have to think about. What is the cost to do that? In many cases, that may be prohibitive in itself. Others that? Further to the carbon capture and storage, uh, the Alberta model, on the, with the other time in their model, they say enhanced total recovery. And the model they're using, the only one that they have, is where they're taking carbon dioxide from North Dakota and getting 18,000 barrels a day extra from a oil field near Lakeland. So that's the plan in Alberta. Is that to push it under and use the expansion of the, of the gas uh, to, to put more carbon into the air, to push the oil up, enhance the oil recovery, and as well, with brilliant uh, Ron Meeker, Ron Evans said that that will be our liability in the future. All the liability will not fall on the companies that want to keep the oil and you can imagine the, the, the desire of those oil companies to stop enhancing the production and the profit. Well, why would they stop at all? So that's the Alberta advantage to start capturing storage. Is there a question? No, I just want to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just checking. Thank <laughs> you. Mr. Steve, uh, I think there's. Uh, Potentially some excitement in politics uh, in the uh, As a young person who's angry and frustrated, what are your plans around politics? And, and also, also, if you know about friends <coughs> and people your age, what's, what's up? <laughs> well, uh, you know, social media is kind of like, it's kind of the medium that we all go through now. Um, I, I don't in particular have any plans to get involved in politics. 
just because it, it irks me. I mean, I, I love being informed about it, but I, 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 just, I can't get involved because it, it just gets me so frustrated. Um, which I, I don't know. I, I feel I feel guilty of sometimes because I feel like I need to, you know, I need to get involved and I need to try and make changes. But it's um, it's difficult. You know, we're talking about sustainability, and uh, this is one of the things I talk about. What I'm one of the biggest things I learned in Cancun was, you know, personal sustainability and you know the energy that we poured into, you know, organizing and doing the events down in Cancun and you know not getting the kind of reciprocation that we were looking for. Um, it really drained us heavily. Um, you know, and that can affect the movement as a whole. So at, at this point, after the conference, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of taking a breather on it. Like I said, I think politics are—it's about to get exciting. It's, it's. I think we're obviously heading for an election. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, using social media, getting, you know, keeping my friends in contact, and you know, like just having dialogue. You know, that's the most important thing that I, I feel that I do as a youth is just, just creating the dialogue because. It's not happening anywhere. There's there's no dialogue anywhere except in like in this room right now. This is you know this is the best it gets when it comes to climate change in this in this province in this country is public dialogues like this because the companies aren't talking about it publicly. The government isn't you know so this sort of thing is is really where my passion lies and you know getting getting youth like myself in, involved in the discussion and obviously getting them encouraging them to vote and making an informed decision on that front. Let's make a comment. Um, as I sit in this room and, and I've done a few of these, I see the same faces. Like we, we're, we're preaching to the crop to acquire here. You guys are the ones that are informed. You're the ones that think that this is an important issue. Um, but I, I wonder who, because we have a few politicians or a few that have run for office in here, how you feel about what he just said. Um, and, and what's the future of politics when, when you get somebody that's passionate and is informed about somebody just says, I don't have the energy to do that. It's just way too frustrating. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think what I've learned is uh, the public expectation is that you don't take things at face value and that you're critical. And I think education is hyper-critical right now. Um, I have seen, uh, in what I call recent history, right? not a glacial speed, but I have seen a, a real shift in corporate responsibility about environmental issues and environmental awareness. And, and I was talking to Mr. King back there, and I just uh, finished an executive uh, course at the uh, Haskins School of Business at the University of Calgary. And one of those components that we, that we talked about there was how people are making investment decisions in publicly traded companies now based on their uh, policy on uh, environmental responsibility, not just social responsibility. And I think you're dead on when you say social responsibility is what we're getting bombarded with data on climate change, and we just don't know what to do, right? But we, we, we did stop throwing our garbage out the window in about 1965, right? We're doing a better job of that, right? And I think we're doing a lot better job of recognizing the realities of our impact on, on, on the environment. So. so I think politicians, you've got two choices. You can, you can be critical and, uh, and uh, re represent your constituents, right? And I think that you can bring well, Stephen, I'm disappointed. <laughs> Although I, I do know that, that you are a Facebook friend of mine, so uh, that's a start anyway. And, and uh, I know that your daily updates uh, often are, uh, are political things, so I, I hope in your circle of friends uh, you are raising a level of awareness. 
But I, I really lament at the, the awareness uh, the average people, average person has uh, about the issues about politics. Uh, I've often said to people that if you had to show that you're reading the Lethbridge Herald or maybe the Lethbridge Journal, uh, for, for Gen Z, uh, to, to uh, qualify to be able to vote, then the results would be so much different. But uh, I had a conversation that, that really I've repeated this uh, several times to people. We were talking, a friend of mine and I, about negative ads, attack ads, and why do they work? And the reason is that this is the only exposure to politics that most people get. When the news comes on, they flip channels. Uh, they watch uh, Survivor and, and who's the best answer and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, Leave it to Beaver or something like that. That's been a few years since then. Water Neighbors. Who's the Justin Beaver? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's different. <laughs> <laughs> I know who he is. He's a where I come from. Anyway, uh, yeah, there's, what we need is education. The education system, um, perhaps, uh, the behest of the political masters has fallen down abysmally in educating the students about civics, about, you know, it used to be, uh, I think, a, a big component of social, social studies is current events. Uh, you're, you're, a, you're a science educator, Rick, but you must be a bit aware of what's going on in, in other parts of the curriculum. Do they teach current events anymore? Do they talk about these things in schools? I put it on Facebook. I, I, may I make a comment here? I think, oh, yes, yes. Go ahead. <laughs> and we yeah. have a question in the back as well. So I'm going to limit this discussion to three more minutes, and then we have a couple more questions. So go ahead. At, at the risk of, of, of overgeneralizing, um, I see a tendency on behalf of, of the general population to be. Uh, I think we have lost our capacity to be investigative. We see it in the newspaper, we see it in we see it in, in public forums, we see it in the way people are treated when they say they have something or they've done something or they've gone somewhere. We take things at face value, we don't we don't investigate, we don't ask questions. And I think there's a it comes down to personal responsibility, and I think that uh, that's something we have to uh, teach our children and our grandchildren, and it's something we should demand of our education system, most definitely. Anybody have a Sure. Anthony, that's why I made the comment about the 20th century curriculum. Many of you know that I have been, I've been involved to help write every strand of the science curriculum since the early 80s. I was one of the bad people that helped set the assessment grant for God. Yeah. Uh, at a time when actually exams meant something and did something. Uh, Fourth children. And the unfortunate part is when we actually believe that the examination process of the diplomas will still accomplish what we set out to do. Uh, when you revert back to multiple choice only, because that way you limit uh, political action from teachers, and when it comes to marketing time, well, that was my side voice, right? Uh, that wasn't, you were still up, that was Rick. 
kind of help set up the assessment branch. You can say that they are not valid to that point any longer. Uh, the first year in 1984, I was also serving as a physics, a test development specialist, which means basically you help construct the exams, essentially for the physics 30. We, of the batch of exams we pulled to do the standard setting in the beginning, which is 100, there were only five that filled in the multiple, not the, the open response, that went beyond the multiple choice. Five out of 100. And 20% of the exam was open-ended. They had forgotten how to express themselves. They hadn't been engaged in that process. We're getting back to that, and someone's being blamed on the 21st century learner, which I do not buy into. Yes, kids skim a lot more, and in terms of able to get the depth, etc. Well, that's what we have to do in the classroom. But also in that time period, I'd say this to the teachers' conventions when I'm speaking on similar topics, and just going, you know, you know the worst problem we have with curriculum right now? Look to your right. Look to your left. I'll give you a mirror is that as we construct the curriculum, this is the first time in the science curriculum, the elementary one that was supposed to be released two years ago, which now is going to be released in 2015, which is going to have to be redone, because God forbid we might have one more flyby like the Voyager and realize all those textbooks were outdated. The world has changed so rapidly, we shifted back to less content, more on the processes, understanding and interpreting and questioning. That's what we need to do. And that's when you're talking about the social studies. It's so crammed. We think it's content. It's not. It's teaching them those life skills, letting them engage in it. But it is a scary world for a teacher when you've got 40, I'll pick on high school right now, so 40 students in grade 10, of which 10 should either be behind bars, or, oh, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> not quite that bad, outside bars. <laughs> <laughs> the bars, yeah, they are outside bars, sorry. Uh, where we really do need to reinforce things like, excuse me, you have every right to voice your opinion here, but there's 39 other students. So after we hear from you, we'd like to hear from some others. Don't butt in. Learn how to be civil again. And we have to have parents that are willing to stand up and reinforce that in the school to where they've got the first ones that come in and say, what do you mean George is acting up again? Anybody that knows George, his whole life he's been acting up. <laughs> you just have to channel it. Well, how can you do that when you barely get to know these two? So there's these other complexities. But we do have to get back to those core elements. And it doesn't mean right-wing shifts, and it doesn't mean bringing religion back into the classroom and all those. All those might be elements within certain communities. But it means getting back to the essence, as you're just saying, that whole thing of social responsibility. Because go up to the university, go into some of those management classes, because I've been working with some of those students. Wow! When they become the leaders in those communities, you're going to see corporate social responsibility, because that's how they think. So we do have to get back to some of that. I, I hope that answers part of that. Not that I feel strong. <laughs> so we have about time for two more questions. So there's a question at the back. Go ahead. Um, first of all, I'd like to commend you Um, 
very, he thinks I know too much with respect to, to uh, climate change. <coughs> so I have to listen to his encouragement, asking me to give further thought to the other side. I have read a little of the other side as well. But then, a lot of it, even though I might have been talking on one aspect, last week it was all thrown again with the fiasco in Japan. So, I would just say, please hang in there and encourage your friends as well. You know, because if you are ever to, and you are our future leader, you and this young man here and other people that are younger than us, we need you. Thank you. And Debbie, you with your hand up? Yeah. So you'll take the last question. Um, uh, <coughs> yes, the earth, if you notice these days, the earth is shaking up. And so are a lot of repressive regimes in North Africa right now. And I just feel that there is the same sort of um, ripple effect happening uh, throughout the world with young people who, uh, especially they see there's, there's no jobs and all the money is being collected by the, by the elite and uh, it's very, very frustrating and I can feel that boiling up and boiling up and uh, so I'm kind of uh, wondering, Stephen, um, if the occasion arises, like sometimes leaders are uh, found and made and forced into the leadership role so uh, maybe someday you will be a leader in some political venue somewhere, sometime. Hopefully in Southern Alberta. I really don't want you to move to Vancouver. I've never heard of earthquake. You should stay here. <laughs> <laughs> so what are, you, what are you going to do in Vancouver? I feel like maybe maybe I misrepresented myself. I have no intention of like bowing out of you know environmental issues or political issues. It's just not my intention to like be you know front and center on the political stage sort of thing. Um, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to comment actually when you, you mentioned you know the sort of boiling point the youth are reaching all over the world. And um, when when I talk to my friends about political involvement. Um, they're, they're less concerned about elections and talking to their MPs. They're, a lot of youth, they, they want to go out on the streets. Um, they want to see that legitimacy in, uh, in peaceful civil disobedience. And that's where a lot of energy is. And obviously, they're, you know, they may be picking up on that energy um, from the stuff that's happening in the Middle East. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's something that it's, maybe it's just youthful aggression that comes out on us. But it's, it's our way of you know, telling we're, we're getting impatient, right? Um, and, you know, we obviously have to also legitimize the political process. You know, that's how, you know, the bureaucracy, that's how we get these systems to, to make these changes, you know, in that slow way. But, you know, when it comes to climate change, you know, we've been saying, you know, we don't have a lot of time, right? Um, so that's, that's really something that I've been paying attention to lately is, you know, people, you know, it's, it's not that they want to get violent, it's not that they want to get aggressive, but you know, people want to take to the streets, and it's out there. There's a lot of people out there who really want to see change, and uh, it's unfortunate because, I mean, this is what I ran into in Cancun a lot, is that because of my youth, you know, I, I kind of almost get labeled into that naive category of, you know, they're just protesting for the sake of protesting or, you know, yelling at people. You know, we, obviously, we really want to be heard. We feel like we have an important message to, to take, um, but, you know, it's just we don't feel like we're being heard. 
Um, so that's where that kind of aggression is, is boiling over. And I think, you know, obviously in the Middle East, that's after like 40 or 50 years or more of, you know, dictatorships taking over. But in Canada, it's, it's just, we don't feel like the system is, is working at all. Like, it's just not working. Um, and uh, that's, it's very frustrating for me. And that's, that's, that's one of the main reasons why I don't want to get involved in it, because it's just, we need a new system. That's, that's what most of us feel like. We just, we just need a whole new system. <laughs> so that was a really fantastic session, and I know that there was some more hands up, and I apologize that we didn't cut it short, but unfortunately we do. However, I'm sure that all three of them would be really willing to talk to you after this is all done, and you can congregate in the beautiful outdoor area of the Gulf. It is beautiful, <laughs> and it is very lovely. So before everyone did, I'd like to let you know that the session happening on Thursday, that's this Thursday coming up from noon to 1.30 again at Country Kitchen Catering, can traditional family farms provide globalization and free trade. Our dreams for supporting the family farm appear to be plentiful among both urban and rural folks. However, paying more for food is not one of them. This type of farming has no past in the life of the rural society economy, but driven by many factors, the landscape is changing. What was considered an industrial farm 30 years ago is now the norm, and as technology expands, chances are still the size of family farms. So our speaker will be Brian Odom, a third-generation farmer. Brian owned the grain, oil, season, special crop store for 38 years. He'll be teaching degree from the University of Calgary, and he operates a family farm on a 4,000-acre farm near Warner, Alberta. So again, that is this Thursday, noon to 1.30, Country Kitchen Catering. It is $10 cost for your lunch, and I know they do a fantastic job with providing uh, different options if you're vegetarian or vegan. Just make sure you request in advance. And uh, again, a big thank you to our speakers. Such a fantastic job. First of all, before we wrap up, I'd like to thank Dr. Margaret because without that environmental sustainability, I know our four-year quest for on-campus composting wouldn't have happened. And it has been a long road, but now you can compost on campus, which is very exciting. So again, thank you very much for everyone coming out. Thank you to the University of Lethbridge, the Gulf Museum, and of course, the staff. Have a great evening and be safe.